All right. So I asked the seniors to sit up front because uh, I want to, you know, talk to them directly and uh, include the rest of you in it. And I, I thought about how to approach this time. And uh, where's Mike, by the way? Mike's with his family, too. I thought I saw him because... Really? So 60% did not obey. <laughs> Fail. All right. So um, I thought about how to, how to do today because uh, I wanted to do a couple of things. I want to um, commission. We want to commission these seniors as they go out. And we are also preaching through God's word. And so we want to be faithful to God's word. And we also want to include everyone who's here in this process. And so I um, thought about how to do that. And I thought, well, it's kind of a commencement speech. And, and I thought, that's not a commencement speech. You don't do that in church. And, and uh, we, we do preach sermons. And, so, and we do commission people. And so it's more of a commissioning sermon for, uh, for our graduating seniors. And I, I am certain it will be relevant to all of us. Um, and so uh, to set the stage for this, I do want to ask a couple questions, though. Uh, a couple of questions, particularly of our seniors, though they're, they're relevant to all of us. Seniors, how are you going to keep your feet on the ground after graduation? Spiritually speaking, how are you going to keep your feet on the ground after graduation? Do you know how to keep from getting swept up into the destructive current of this world? And we've invested... And parents, you've done a great job with these graduating seniors. And you have invested, and we have invested in these, uh, in these graduates. And we've tried to teach, and we've tried to model, and we've tried to mentor, and we've prayed for, and we've agonized with, and we've walked through the last four years with these students through uh, all the things that they faced. And uh, I hope they know the, an the answer to, to those questions. But today... We're going to look at a specific way to answer those questions. We're going to be in, in uh, the book of Exodus and starting in chapter 20. We're going to do the first part of chapter 20 today. And I think uh, this chapter answers well some of these questions that we have. Um, this morning we're going to be talking about just the first four of the Ten Commandments. There, there are ten, as you guessed from the, from the name. But we're only going to talk about four of them. And uh, sometimes this is referred to as the first tablet you know, there were two tablets, and, and uh, the, these first four commandments have some things in common that are different than the, the remaining six. And that is that these first four focus more specifically on our relationship vertically with God. And then the remaining six tend to focus more on our relationship with each other, how we treat one another, how we relate together, and those sort of things. And, and so um, we, we're going to talk about uh, just those first four for our time today. It's not, that, it's not that God needs us to treat him a particular way. It's not that God is needy. It's not that he's um, like we are, by the way. We kind of need to be treated a certain way. We get, you know, upset with someone if we're treated with, you know, without respect or, or whatever. It's not that God needs us to treat him a certain way. He, he really is the great I am. He's the self-existent one. He's the self-determined one. He exists perfectly in eternity, and, uh, and he doesn't need anything from us. We don't supply a need that he has. But he has created us, and, uh, and he has 
He has created us. Obviously, we're his creatures. And so we come to him in a particular way as creatures coming to relate to our creator. And so the fact is that in the Ten Commandments, God graciously communicates himself and his expectations to us. And so that's what's happening there in the Ten Commandments. He shows us how we should relate to him as our Lord. And so with that in mind, let's go ahead and open up to... uh, to Exodus chapter 20, if you're not already there, and I'm just going to do the first, read the first 11 verses today. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we have your word before us. And we desire to be taught from your word. We desire to learn from you what you would have us know. And so we pray that you, by your spirit, would would teach us from your word this morning. I pray that you would bless our time together. I pray that you would guide, um, guide my words and that you would open our hearts to hear what you have for us. May your word be honored and lifted up and valued. May you be honored and lifted up and valued. And may we learn from these first four commandments about how we relate to you. At the same time, I pray for our graduates and pray for your blessing on them. I pray that you would guide them Lead them, protect them, provide for them. And even as we are here this morning, sitting under the teaching of the word, I pray that you would open their minds and their hearts to understand what you have from your word for them. Bless us now and be honored, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get to the actual uh, commandments, we have kind of the preamble, right? So we have the first... Uh, the first commandment coming up, but we have the preamble. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If we read the, the Ten Commandments alone, not in their context, we might mess up how they're to be understood. The, the fact is the giving of the Ten Commandments happens in a point in the book. And we've been reading and preaching through the book to this point, and we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then we will continue. And so the story will go on. 
And uh, it's important for us to place the giving of the Ten Commandments in its proper context, right, to be able to understand them. And, and that's exactly what our author does right here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so he's very uh, careful to remind them who he is and what he's just done. He, he ties that right into the Ten Commandments so that we will understand when we read them and when we study them and when we recall them that that's the context in which he gives them, right? They had served Pharaoh and the Egyptians in slavery for generations. They had been slaves for generations. Serving Pharaoh when they should have been serving God and they were not free to do so. And the Lord then revealed himself to them in a way that they... They had never known before, revealed himself as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, self-existent, self-determined God. They, they knew his name. They had heard the Lord, Yahweh. They had heard that before, and the, their fathers had heard that, but it wasn't until the burning bush and the revelation, really, of who God really was that they came to know him as the covenant-keeping God. And so they're, they're about to see him in action, so they, they, they now know better who he is. And then finally, he had rescued them from the land of slavery and brought them miraculously to himself in the wilderness, just as he had promised Moses way back in chapter 3 at the burning bush that he would do. And it's interesting that even back there at the burning bush in chapter 3, he said, you will come and serve me on this mountain. And we see that they had been in service to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for all this time. And we see, and even in these commandments today, that they are to serve the one true God only. And so service is due to the Lord. And so he arranges that, brings them out, rescues them, delivers them from that place of captivity and bondage and brings them out into the wilderness, brings them to himself. And now here they are. And so that's the kind of context that's, uh, that's going on there. And so you would think, wow, this is great news. This is wonderful. We get to meet the Lord. He's done all these wonderful things for us, right? And that's true. But remember what Woody talked about last week. Remember chapter 19. Chapter 19 wasn't a big celebration with streamers and, and whistles, right? There was preparation that had to be done. You're going to come to the mountain and you're going to meet with God. And what happens when you come to the mountain to meet with God? Well, we see, uh, we see that when God's presence is made known there on the mountain in verses 16 and 18, back in uh, chapter 19, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. So there wasn't rejoicing and cheering and you know, we're going to meet with God because he, you know, saved us from the people and there was trembling. Even though they knew God in that way, even though God had rescued them, he had delivered them and brought them to that point, there was trembling. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so there's a message here. This saving God, this covenant-keeping God who's delivered you, is not to be trifled with. He really is sovereign God of the universe. He really is the Almighty. He really is your deliverer, your redeemer, the one you call Lord. So he's not to be trifled with. And so those are the, the two almost contrasting ideas that are playing, at, playing in their minds here. On the one hand, you have this great redeemer, deliverer God, and they rejoice to know him. And on the other hand, they tremble when they get near him. And rightly so. God does that on purpose. He could, he could have shown up quietly, but he didn't. 
He wrapped stuff in smoke and he shook the mountain and there was thunder and lightning and there was a, a, a ram's horn blowing and people were shaking and it was scary. Trembling of the ground. They trembled and the earth trembled. And so that's the context. You have both of those things playing together as we go into our, uh, our, our first four of the Ten Commandments. And God, really what he's doing here in the Ten Commandments is revealing his character, his nature, and his expectations for his people. He's already talked about covenant back in chapter 19. He's going to get back to talking about covenant in the next couple of chapters. This relationship he wants to have with him. And now, right in the middle of that, he gives the Ten Commandments saying, these are my expectations on you, covenant member. These are my expectations on you. And so with that as the background, it kind of helps us get a better idea of what he means to communicate to us with the Ten Commandments themselves. And so we, we uh, read there in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is about God's absolute supremacy. His absolute supremacy. You shall have no other gods before me. By the way, this, this commandment is foundational for all of the others that are to come. It's based on an understanding of who God is and the fact that he's the only one in that position. The rest of them are built on that truth right there. After all that God has undertaken to preserve and protect and now deliver his people, it should be clear that they belong to him, right? And he said in 19.5 that they were his treasure, treasured possession. Now, that's a great way that God speaks of his children. And so he says here, you shall have no other gods before me. But what does it mean to have another God before him? To have another God before the Lord. What does that mean? Well, certainly it means that... Um, at least, that, that uh, we are not to value something or, or hold something as more than God. Or you value something more than you value God. That would be having another God before Him. Right? He's the one who redeemed you. He's the one who bought you back. And here you are putting something else in, in, instead of Him as that uh, to which you hold your highest allegiance. Whether it's money or prestige or any of the things that you might go after, maybe a relationship. It could be something like that that you value more than God, that you, you look at it and you say, well, God says this, but I really want this more than I want God. And so I'm going to put God in second chair so that I can honor this thing that I really want more or maybe this thing that I really fear more, this thing I want to pursue more. And so practically we put God in the second chair. And so that's what it means to have a God before him. But it means more than that because the language is, is, is a little different there. It doesn't just mean have a God superior to your God. But the wording here talks about having a God even in his presence. Maybe you've elevated something to be alongside God. Or, or uh, you value something as much as you value God. Or it's kind of a toss-up. You know, some days yes, some days no. You've, you've got something else that's creeping in to be, to be in God's presence as if it were as important in your life as God is. So it doesn't even have to surpass it. It could be just in, in God's presence. He demands to have that ultimate position. He is the creator God. We should give him that ultimate position. Let him have that and don't have some competition uh, going on with something else in his presence. And I think the implications in our lives are pretty clear. 
Is there something that you serve or worship or hold up as valuable alongside the Lord or more than the Lord? Of course, the Sunday school answer is no, right? We've all been to Sunday school. We know that, no, that's, that's not the case. I've read this verse. But practically in your own life, in how you spend your time and how you spend your money and the way you navigate your relationships and, and the way you live life, that may not really be the case. So I want you to ask yourself that question. Maybe the answer is different. Is there something or someone you look to for guidance or direction more than you look to the Lord? That's another way to look at it. Same question, different way to look at it. And of course, sitting here in our church, by the way, it's easy to say there's no one like the Lord. Where else would we go since he has the words of eternal life? And we say that now because we're all together in the church and we're, we're, you know, we're accountable to each other and we're hearing the word preached and we're, we just finished singing songs and we've prayed and, and I want to encourage you in that. There's a lesson in there too. Stay in church. Stay in church. Is it easier to give in to those things, to desire something else alongside God when, you, when you're inconsistent in church, when you've not been going to Bible study or attending a service in the morning or meeting with brothers or sisters and praying together or going to connect group and Bible study. And when you've removed yourself from the church environment, is it easier to give in to those things? Oh, man, it really is. It really is easier to elevate something else into the presence of God. And so I would encourage you, just as you are bolstered even now that, no, why, why would I go to anyone else or anything else to gain uh, the, you know, to, the things that, that the Lord is to provide for me? We answer that now because we're together. So one of the applications is stay together. Be regular in the attendance of church. We talked about membership just a little bit this morning. Part of membership is a commitment that we're going to do this regularly. We're going to join together, and I'm going to help you fight off those temptations, and you're going to help me fight off those temptations. And so I encourage you in that. When you go to your next place in life, graduates, find a church that preaches the Bible and get plugged in. By the way, both of those are important. If you found a great church but you're not really a part of it, not really plugged in, it's not going to help you out much. Find that church and get plugged in and be involved. It needs to be a good Bible-preaching church that holds this up as the standard. And they need to preach it. And you need to be involved, be plugged in there. It will help you. You shall have no other gods before me. Anytime, by the way, I, I think that anytime we break really any of the other commandments, we've already broken this one. We're holding something as more important than God. That's the first commandment. The second one talks about God's means of worship. God's means of worship, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's about God's means of worship. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or bow down to it to serve it. The question is about how, how do we understand God? We've already addressed the fact that we're not supposed to bow down to other gods or have other gods in, in God's presence. That's what the first commandment was about. Other competing gods. They would compete for our allegiance. That would compete for our obedience. The second commandment's a little bit different. 
It's talking about how we know God, how we understand God, how we worship God. It's about our worship of him. You see, this, this idea of, uh, of having an idol, for us, we, we don't really understand the way they looked at it back in that context. This is, you know, three and a half thousand years ago. They, the, the world at the time looked at things a little bit differently. And the, the religions at the time were different than they are now. So they didn't think these, these neighboring religions of theirs, these other pagan religions that bowed down to Baal or to Ashtaroth or whatever, they, they didn't think that this little figurine was actually their God. It was a means through which they worship God. It was a picture of their God. And when their God blessed them, he might inhabit that figurine. And they would worship him that way. But it was essentially a, a means of worshiping God. And so what they would do is build this temple. And they would put this figurine right in the middle, their idol, that they would put right in the middle. And they would bow down to that. And that's how they would worship their God. They didn't believe that this thing was their God. They believed that their God existed in some spiritual reality behind this figurine. And this figurine was a means of worshiping that God. And that is what the Lord's addressing here. He said, don't, don't go making carved images. Don't make figurines to worship. To worship me or anyone else. That would be covered in the first commandment. But if you think into the future, think about what's going to happen at the, at the uh, golden calf incident. They're going to make these golden calves. And they're going to say, behold, our gods who took us out of the land of Egypt. And they, they, think they, they say they think they're worshiping Yahweh through worshiping these golden calves. It wasn't that they made alternatives as if they forgot that Yahweh was the one who delivered them from the land of Egypt. And now they've brought in these alternative uh, gods and, and made them and worship, worshiping them. They, they say they're worshiping Yahweh. So that's what's going on here in this second commandment. How do we understand God? How do we represent God? How do we worship God? And he's saying, look, all the neighboring religions around you have this tent or this tabernacle or this temple. And in the middle of this temple, in the very central place, the holiest place, they have this figurine. And people bow down to that figurine and that's how they worship their God. He said, I don't want you to do that. And so if you think ahead about what happens when they build the tabernacle later in the book of Exodus and they, they, they form the holiest place, right? And what's in the holiest place, the holy of holies, the ark. And what do they put in the ark? The word of God. They put the, the testimony, they call it, the Ten Commandments. They put that into that central place in the ark. God is trying to communicate to them, you worship me through my word. You don't make an image of me. And worship that image. You worship me through my word. And that's the only way you worship me. He is forbidding here the uh, making of an image that's supposed to represent who God is. And if you think about it, you think about God's character and, and his nature and, and, and what he's really like. He's uh, infinite. Okay, well, how do you represent that in a figurine? <laughs> you might find some way that you think, you know, this infinity symbol, I don't know. Find some way to, to throw that, but he's eternal. How are you going to represent that in a figurine? He's holy. He's almighty. He's unchanging. And we could go on and on and on about, about the nature of who God is. And how are you going to represent that in a, in, a, in a figurine? How are you going to make an image that represents that? Well, you might, you know, you might be able to represent one or the other of those. 
but you're, you're not going to be able to get them all in there. And over time, <clears throat> even, even if you start out as a helpful, you know, I want to give a visual aid for what the holiness of God looks like. And I make this figurine or whatever. After a while, if, if we, if we keep using that thing in our worship, we're, we're going to shift our understanding of who God is. And we're going to morph the idea of God being holy into what this thing looks like. And we will now picture in our minds when we talk about God that, well, he looks like this thing. We've shrunk him down. His word communicates huge things to us. His word communicates things to us that we can't, <clears throat> we can't boil down, render down into a picture. And so his word is the method, the means by which he has given us to worship him. That's what this commandment's about. How are we going to worship God? Often in our culture, if you ask someone about God, they will say, well, to me, God is like such and such. What have they done? They probably haven't made a literal figurine, but they've shrunk God down to some version that they can kind of comprehend in their mind. Well, to me, God is like this. I, well, you know, I don't, I'm not going to worship the God who to you is like that. I'm going to worship the God who's found in here, who reveals himself in here. By the way, that's why we preach the word. Because this is where he's communi communicated himself. And if you were to ask me to describe, Brennan, I'll give you two days to come up with, you know, a paper or a, whatever, a summary, a, a description of who God is. Would that be perfect and complete and infallible? No. No. And so I continue to study to fill in those gaps. And we as a church continue to preach the word and we continue to read and we continue to hold each other accountable to what it says because we're filling in the gaps because we don't want a God that we've shaped and formed in our mind with the, the few little things that we can comprehend. We want this God. And that's what he says in the second commandment. That's why you don't make idols. Did you notice here that there's a, there's a generational consequence to the way we worship God. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. In verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Do you know there are consequences for your children to the, to the way you worship God? Your, your children are going to worship God in a similar way to the way you do, or they're going to react against the way you do. You have a concept of who God is. I have a concept of who God is. And the way I worship him will, will have consequences for my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. Because I'm setting the tone. I'm, te I'm teaching them who God is. And that's why I, as a dad, and I, as a pastor, keep my nose in this thing. Because I don't want to mislead my children. I don't want to worship God in a way that my kids say, that's crazy. Dad's just wrong. I don't want any of that. Or to say, yeah, dad's exactly right in this wrong opinion. I don't want either one of those. I want to continue to bring my children and my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren to the word of God. We want to be coming to the word of God as a church. That's why we are Parkside Bible Fellowship, because we're centering on God's word. And that's, that's what's going on here. Now, you see there, he says, I'm a jealous God. And by the way, God being jealous is a good thing. He wants what's rightly due him. He's the supreme being, 
all worship is due to him. And when worship goes to somewhere else, that's not a good thing. That's what he's saying. Worship should come to me because I'm the only one worthy of worship. That's what it means that he's a jealous God. Visiting the the iniquity of the fathers on children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. That sounds harsh. But there are consequences to the way we worship. But look at the mercy of God. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Thousands. So we have a couple numbers to compare. Three or four and thousands. There's an emphasis on God's mercy here. And so, what's the application for us? When you think of God, are your thoughts guided by Scripture or are they guided by something else? Are they guided by what you read on, you know, Facebook? Or a song you heard on the radio? Or a comment that a friend made? Are you guided by the word of God or are you guided by something else? Absolutely any other means of coming to God will distort him and you will end up with a warped view of who God is. You will end up with a God who doesn't actually exist. You will end up an idolater. By the way, we say that we, uh, we worship God through Jesus. And I say amen. How do we find out about Jesus in his word? And you say, well, but I, but I know Jesus experientially. I have a relationship with him. I know him exper- experientially. And I say, amen. But how, how do you know that what you are experiencing is Jesus as he is in Scripture? And how do you know that he's not just some emotional experience that you're having? There are, there are cults that have begun all over the place because of a, a, an experience with Jesus that's divorced from Scripture. It's just Jesus and me. I don't need the church, and, and really the Bible's fine, but I, don't, you know, I have Jesus. And where do you end up? It's scary to think where you might end up. We worship God through His Word, the Bible. Thirdly, God's sacred name. Look at verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God's sacred name is the third commandment. And how do we, how do we uh, when we normally think about taking God's name in vain, we normally think of speech. Maybe we think of swearing, something like that, misusing God's name in the way we speak, uh, or maybe speaking crassly about God, or maybe swearing or something like that. That is certainly a misuse of God's name. Absolutely. That's, that's forbidden. And why would you want to do that? Why would you want to, why would you want to take the name of the one who, de- who delivered you and misuse it? Why would you want to twist it to mean something bad? Why would you want to use it to curse someone? When he's the God who delivered you. So it, it certainly means those things. It also means taking his name in a casual way. Just, just talking about him like in regular, uh, regular conversation. And, and there's no reverence with the way you talk about him. There's no reverence with the way you refer to him. You, you just, you know, as if I was talking about, you know, my buddy Chuck and, 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 and my buddy Tony and, and, and the Lord and, and, as if they're on equal planes. When we talk about the Lord, there's something different. There's another way to think about it, though. It says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Take. It didn't say speak. 
It said take. How do you take the, name, the, the, the Lord's name? You call yourself a Christian. You take the name of Christ. Right? I, I take the name of Christ. And so to take his name in vain means that I take his name, I call myself a Christian, and then I go and live contrary to who he is, how he's revealed himself to be. I'm taking his name in vain when I do that. Call myself a Christian and act this way that's completely contrary to that. I'm showing, demonstrating to all the people around me, this is what God's like. He doesn't really care how you live. Do what you want. Have fun. That's what you're communicating about God when you take his name in vain. And so when we call ourselves Christians, there should be a degree of weight in that, right? A simple illustration is the little fish that's on the back of the car, right? That, that just whipped by you, right? Going, going 20 miles an hour over speed limit or whatever. They are taking the name of Christ, by the way, unless they just bought that thing used and didn't remove the fish. I don't have a fish on my car, by the way, because I think it relates to this commandment. I, I, I follow the laws when I drive. But... Uh, I take seriously taking the name of the Lord, calling myself a Christian, calling myself a follower of Jesus. I take that very seriously. I don't take it lightly. That's because of this, this commandment here, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so God's sacred name. Do you show respect for God's name, the respect that it deserves? Whenever you use his name, I think of texting. I think of on Facebook. OMG. You're, you're, you're invoking God for what? To laugh at something? To point out that something was stupid? And you invoke the name of God. Do you show respect for God's name, the respect that it deserves? Whenever you use his name, are you conscious of the fact that, uh, of what he's done for you, that he's your deliverer? He started off this whole thing by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you use the Lord's name when it's uh, not really appropriate? Or do you call yourself a Christian and are happy to act like one on Sunday and then the rest of the week run the other direction? You're also taking his name in vain. You should not take his name in vain. And fourthly, God's appointed day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Look at, look at uh, verses 8 through 11 there. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so the commandment is, so keep that day holy. Now, I'll start off by saying we are not under the law. And I'll, I'll get to how this, this one applies to us. But uh, in Egypt, they didn't have a rest day. They didn't have a normal week that included a day of rest every week. They were slaves. They went to work. That's what they did, right? And, by the way, the Egyptian calendar was a 10-day week, not a 7-day week. But, uh, but the Lord rescued them from that. He delivered them from that. And think about what he instituted with them. He said, you used to work like dogs and be treated like dogs. And got paid like dogs, right? That used to be you. You were in slavery. That's, that's the way you were treated. But I am calling you out. And I am decreeing that every week you will have an entire day of rest. And I mean rest. Don't even build a fire to heat your lunch. Rest. 
rest on that day. That's what the Lord means. So he's called them to that place of rest. But it's not just a rest for them. It's called a Sabbath to the Lord. So they, they rest from their normal everyday work. They take a day and they set it aside. And this is for the Lord. We talked about this in our connect group that, that if you were a farmer and it was, it was time to harvest, you better harvest all you can on Friday. Because when the sun goes down on Friday night, the Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday night. You're not doing any work. You're not harvesting until Sunday. You're taking the Sabbath off. And so you would have to trust the Lord. Oh, it's harvest time. Now's the perfect time and the storm's coming and the, and I really need this money. And the Lord said, rest on the seventh day. So do your work in six days, plan it out differently, do it in six days or whatever, but stop and take that time. We are not under the law. And it's not the Sabbath today, by the way. It's Sunday. It's the first day of the week. It's not, it's not Saturday, the seventh day of the week, right? And there's a, a long discussion about, about why that's the case, why we worship on this day. But primarily, it's because today is the Lord's day. This is the day we remember Jesus rising from the dead. And so the most important event in our lives, the most important event in Christian history is not creation, which is, which is what's being celebrated here. And, and the Ten Commandments, when they're given in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there's a reference made to another ultra-important thing in the life of Israel being brought out of the land of Egypt. That's also not the greatest, uh, important, most important thing in the calendar of our lives. The resurrection of Christ is the most important thing in the calendar of our lives. And so we celebrate and we set aside Sunday, the first day of the week, and that's how we do that. That's, that's why we uh, do it on Sunday, and that's, that's the way we worship Him. So what does this mean for us since we are not under the law and you can go home and start your stove to reheat your dinner? You can use your microwave, and if you, you know, want to build a fire to heat your dinner, you can do that too if you really want it. We, we're, we're not under those same restrictions. But the, the same principle applies. God intended to build into their lives one day of the week, one day out of seven, where they, they wouldn't make a penny. They wouldn't do normal work at all. An entire day of that, they would set it aside. It was for worship. It was for rest. It was set aside for the Lord. And what do you think that taught them? What do you think that taught them when, when harvest time was coming and they were looking, you know, and the crop's going to be exactly right at this time and, and the Sabbath day? Punishment was really bad, by the way, if you broke the Sabbath. So they weren't going to break the Sabbath. They would wait and trust the Lord and harvest the next day. Or they would harvest the day earlier. They rearranged their lives around the reality of who God is and the fact that He is more important than my daily activities, more important than my routine work that I do that may be very important. Not discounting that, but saying He is above that. He is above that. And I think we would be benefited, and, and graduates who are, who are going off, you would be benefited to build a Sabbath rest into your week, that you have a time where you will cease from work because you trust the Lord, not just because you want to nap, napping is fine, but because you trust the Lord. You're going to work like a dog six days a week to get your homework done. And the seventh day, you're going to set aside. And you're going to worship and you're going to trust the Lord. But wouldn't you get better grades if you, if you did homework seven days a week rather than six days a week? Maybe. I, I don't know. 
Trust the Lord. I encourage you to do that. Set that aside. What you are saying to yourself, what you are saying to people around you and to the Lord himself is that he is more important than you getting everything done that you can. Because he is more important. Life as it is lived on Sunday, I think, is the way life is supposed to be. We're sitting under the teaching of God's word. We're ministering to other people. We have, we have ceased from our work, and we enjoy our work, and our work is important. Our work is very important. But we've ceased from it to do something even more important, which is worship God. God's appointed day. The New Testament tells us our rest is in Jesus. And so we don't, we don't have that same principle that you know, you're going to be stoned to death if you do stuff on, on Saturday. <laughs> we don't have that. We can praise the Lord for that. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. But this principle is still true. It's still true. And I think we lose something when we gamble on the fact or we really place a, all of our weight on the fact that Jesus is our rest and therefore I can, you know, I can work seven days a week, I can treat Sunday, Saturday, every day exactly the same and not set aside a time for the Lord. We really lose something. We lose that testimony of our lives that says this person trusts Jesus enough that he will stop working where he makes money. He will pause from that and he will say, this is more important. And so I, I give the Lord today. So graduates, these four commands are foundational for our Christian life. We worship the God of the Bible alone. We worship only in the manner that he has prescribed and we worship only him as he has described himself, not a caricature of him where we've warped this little piece and changed that little piece. We worship him, not a caricature. We honor and hallow his name, his reputation, his fame in our speech and in our actions. We have built into our faith that concept that this life is not all there is. So we set aside time each week to remind ourselves and each other of his provision for us and that we live solely by his provision. By the way, giving fits into the same category. Christians, how in the world can you live on, you know, 90% or less of your income? Why don't you just, you know, make use of that other 10%? Well, because it's the Lord's and we're, we're content with that. We might be able to buy a bigger house. We might be able to buy a newer car. We might be able to, you know, do these other things, eat out more often or whatever it is we like to do. If we would just use that other 10% or, or whatever percent we give to the Lord. But we don't because we value the Lord and we say this is his. Let's do the same with our time. Each of these commands, by the way, points to Christ. We are to worship God alone. And Jesus prays in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We are not to make images of God to worship, but Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Colossians chapter 1. We are to keep God's name unprofaned, and Philippians tells us that God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to be careful and, and rest from our everyday work and to focus our energies on God alone. The person who strives to build his resume with God, whether he calls himself a Christian or not, by the way, can never have rest. That's what 
That's what the author to the Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews chapter 1. There's no rest offered except in Christ. That's where the rest comes. And by the way, if, if you're hearing these commandments and you're thinking, I don't do that, so I must not measure up to God, you're right. And if you're thinking, that scares me, I'm glad. Because that will drive you to ask, so then what do I do? What do I do? And this is where I tell you that Jesus is your rest. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the one that fully and completely obeyed God in all of these ways and in every way. He's the one that went to the cross to pay the penalty for you so that that guilt that you feel right now, and by the way, you don't feel nearly the guilt that you should. That guilt that you feel is, is evidence of real guilt that you have before God, and he judged that in Jesus. He put that judgment on him, and he poured out his wrath on him on the cross so that we, by trusting in Christ, turning from our sin, turning to Christ, we have rest from that striving. If, however, you hear these Ten Commandments and you think, wow, I'm doing pretty good and I just need to do a little bit better. You are on a path that will lead to you striving and striving and striving and striving and striving and striving, striving, never ending. And then you will get to Judgment Day and the Lord will say, I told you to be perfect, not pretty good. And I offered you rest in Jesus and you didn't want it. There is rest in Christ. Turn to Him. That rest is only found in Him. And so, graduates, as I, as I close this, this is how you keep from getting washed away. This is how you keep your feet on the ground. This is how you trust the Lord when there's great temptation not to. This is how you follow after Him when there would be things that would crowd in and, and, and change uh, your focus, want to tempt you to go another way. This is how you keep your feet on the ground. You remember who God is. You remember how to worship him. You keep his name holy. You trust in Christ, the name above every name. And you remember that this life is not all there is. This life is a peek at what's to come. That's eternal. And build your life around that truth that you are not living for what you can get out of this life. You are, you are living in light of eternity. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you have graciously communicated to us uh, in your word and even in these first four of the Ten Commandments who you are and how we can come to you. We as people make up all kinds of different paths to you and we make all kinds of imaginings about you and we, and we form idols, whether physically or, or mentally. They're misshapen and they're not you. They don't represent you. And they lead us astray and we end up usually worshiping ourselves, worshiping our own pleasure, worshiping what we can get. But I thank you for your word that tells us, that reminds us the truth of how crucial it is that we know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 
Father, I pray for your blessing on each of us as we go away. I pray for your blessing on these graduates as they enter a new stage in life. I pray that you would bless them and provide for them. I pray that they would remember your word, that they would be drawn back to your word, that their lives from here on out would be built on your word, grounded in your word, rooted in your word, that they wouldn't be blown away, led astray by what the world would, uh, would, would entice them to do, but instead they would look to you and look to your word. They would worship you as you really are that they would value you, that they would honor you, that they would hold you up in their lives, that you would bless them. Father, I pray that you would bless each of us as we, uh, as we go out and, uh, and live our lives before you and before one another and before this world. I pray that we would hold you up in this way. I pray that we would cling to Jesus, who is our Rest Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen and amen. You are dismissed.